This is Backstory. I'm Peter Onuf. The Republicans have wrapped up their party convention, the Democrats are converging on Philadelphia, and the rest of us get to enjoy the sheer pageantry of it all. For party delegates, though, the conventions can be a slog. We were told we were supposed to be there to hear speeches by the deputy vice mayor from East Overshoe, Indiana, and so on. But nothing actually happened. If you're not a party animal or conventions aren't your idea of entertainment, we sympathize. So today on Backstory, we're going back to a time when the outcomes of political conventions were far from certain. Take, for example, the challenge to segregation that played out at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. We had the national spotlight on Mississippi. So this was the opportunity to change Mississippi and by definition to change the country. The history of party conventions, today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballow, 20th Century Guy, and I'm here with Ed Ayers. Your 19th Century Guy. And Peter Onuf's with us. 18th Century Guy. Well, guys, the Republicans have wrapped up their nominating convention in Cleveland. No big surprise. They nominated Donald Trump. In fact, there were just a few truly newsworthy moments in the entire four days. Like when Ted Cruz got booed by the crowd after he failed to endorse Donald Trump. I'm assuming that the Democrats took notes and they're going to stick together singing Clinton's praises. I also think that it's a safe bet when it's all done, Hillary Clinton will be the nominee. You know, I, I stole glimpses of the convention this last week. And one thing that occurred to me is that there has to be a lot of downtime there. There uh, <laughs> seemed to be a lot of people milling about while they were waiting for the next speaker to take the stage. I really wondered, what do they do with all that time? Now, as it turns out, we actually have a former delegate to a Democratic National Convention from 12 years ago, Lloyd Snook. And we asked him, what did you actually do all that time? We were told we were supposed to be there at 4 o'clock to hear speeches by the deputy vice mayor from East Overshoe, Indiana, and so on. And, hey, uh, he's but, an important guy. Come that's on. right. But, but nothing actually happened, like, till 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock that night until prime time. It was just a very boring, literally a snooze fest. There was one time when I was sitting there, probably the only member of the Virginia delegation there, and I fell asleep with my head in my hand. Oh, Lloyd. I was awakened when uh, a reporter from one of the Chicago papers tapped me on the shoulder and asked me my name because she had taken my picture. And, and so I, I wound up with with this picture of me splattered all over the papers in Chicago. And if I had been smart, I would have said my name was Ed Ayers or something, but I used my real name. Hey, hey, hey. If you're interested, you can see that photo, which is of Lloyd Snook, not of me, on our website, BackstoryRadio.org. Today on our show, we're tackling the question inspired by Lloyd's 15 minutes of fame. Were conventions always this boring? You know, there had to be something exciting back in your period, Peter, or Ed. I mean, people weren't falling asleep at those conventions, were they? Uh, I'd have to say the 19th century is when political conventions were in their heyday. 
And that's for a number of reasons. First, there was a lot at stake. This is when they really did determine in real time, with real horse swapping and deal brokering, who the candidates were going to be. And so not only were they naming the candidates that they were going to rally around, but the delegates were representing districts, especially in the North, where voter turnout was nearly universal. Every man in the county would vote. And so they know they are representing the entire constituency of their party in their county, and they're going to be held accountable for that. The other reasons the conventions were not boring back then is that it was really lubricated by a lot of male bonding so that you had a lot of alcohol. All the sessions would have been just drenched in liquor. You would also find that people were uh, bringing in prostitutes to help persuade swing votes to go their way. And so it would have been a strange combination of civics and debauchery. And they had a lot of jobs, literal jobs, to hand out to folks if their party was able to carry the day. So I'd just add to what Ed already said, a hiring hall. This is a big jobs pool. Mm. And everybody is watching how you're voting. You know, so you if you go back and read the the letters to any basically political figure of the 19th century, as I'm sure everybody wants to do, their files are filled with a letter saying, at the last convention, just ask anybody. I was calling mm. for you when nobody else was. I was a true blue supporter of you uh, when it looked as if your fortunes might fade. So give me that postmastership in East Overshoe, Ohio. I demand it right now. Uh, this is high drama. So I don't think there would have been as many people going to sleep back right. then because there was more at stake. You know, I think about the convention of 1860 in Charleston, South Carolina, when so much is at stake is it breaks up. <laughs> and in many ways, the Civil War is the result. When the Democratic Party decides that it cannot decide on who can represent the entire party in the nation, and the two-party system breaks, then the way is open for Abraham Lincoln. So I guess what I would say is it's not such a bad thing that the conventions today are such snooze fests. What's interesting, Ed, is that back in my period, in the emergence of political parties, they didn't choose their candidates through conventions at all. In fact, the first national party convention didn't happen until 1830. We're going to turn now to the story of how that convention came to be. Now, this story has a lot to do with, of all things, Freemasonry, the Masons. So we're going to pause here just a moment and remind everybody who the Masons are. They're a fraternal organization that I think, Peter, have been around for a long time. Well, they've been in what became the U.S., that is, in the British colonies since the 1730s. And a list of Masons from early American history reads almost like a who's who of the political elite. You got Paul Revere, you got Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, James Monroe, George Washington, even Lewis and Clark. Wow. And so that was really deeply identified with sort of the founding. But by the 19th century, they're even more popular. They seem to be everywhere, and you seem to have to belong to the Masons to get ahead. Now, they've kept their rituals and their practices secret, and so people come to be suspicious. What's going on behind those closed doors with all that paraphernalia that allows these guys to be getting ahead when I'm not? Is this secrecy even compatible with democracy? And in 1826, a lot of this comes to head when a mysterious murder in western New York sparked a powerful anti-Masonic backlash. Backstory producer Jess Ingebretson tells the story. 
The problem started when a brick mason in upstate New York named William Morgan threatened to publish a book revealing Masonic secrets. The local Masonic Lodge decided that he had to be stopped. First, the story goes, they tried to steal the manuscript. When that didn't work, they set fire to the publisher's office. Eventually, they had Morgan arrested for failing to pay a debt of $2.68. He was arrested by a Masonic sheriff. This is Michael Holt, professor emeritus at the University of Virginia. Uh, Released by that sheriff essentially to a, a mob or a group of people who were seen with him in a carriage going from Batavia, New York, west. And that's the last that anyone saw of William Morgan. Some said that he was paid off by the Masons to move to Canada, or that he ended up in the Cayman Islands where he was hanged as a pirate. But the most common story is that the Masons rode him out to the middle of the Niagara River and drowned him. Outraged citizens demanded an investigation. And they got one, sort of. The sheriff was a Mason. He called in grand jury members who were Masons. The judges were Masons. People petitioned the state legislature. Uh, The state legislature wouldn't do anything because it turned out most of the members of the legislature were Masons. Uh, So nothing was done. Concerned locals took matters into their own hands. They were convinced that Masons cared more about protecting each other than protecting American democracy. They gave themselves a name, sensibly enough, the Anti-Masons. Here's what the Monroe County Anti-Masons had to say. In the dark days of the investigation, we supplicated the legislature to quicken her pace and strengthen her arm, but it was a Masonic legislature and we were coldly repulsed. We now appeal to the sovereign people. The sovereign people responded by electing 15 anti-Masons to the state legislature. A new political party was taking shape, dedicated to taking back the government from secretive, corrupt elites. And this spread like wildfire uh, in New York State, uh, and then it spread to other states. There were some uh, traces of it in Ohio and in Michigan Territory, but it was really Pennsylvania, New York, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. The anti-Masons were mostly poor rural farmers, suspicious of big cities and the old boys network that ran them. Anti-Masonic newspapers tarred both major parties with the same brush. The violated laws of the country and the unavenged blood of a murdered citizen were not questions of sufficient importance to withdraw the politicians from the pursuit of political honors. The people were left to oppose Freemasonry without the aid of the laws and unsupported by the countenance of leading men. Throughout the late 1820s, the anti-Masons grew stronger, getting candidates elected to local office and even sending a few representatives to Washington, D.C. Then came the presidential election of 1832. Andrew Jackson, the incumbent, was a Mason. The opposition candidate, Henry Clay, also a Mason. The anti-Masons decided that they had to field their own candidate. Normally, a candidate would have been chosen by the party's congressional caucus, That's how the mainstream parties had done it in the past. But the anti-Masons didn't have enough people in Congress to make that a possibility. 
And anyway, that backroom wheeling and dealing didn't fit well with their populist image. Certainly the Animasons were running as we're the party of the people. We're the party of Republicans with a small r against grand kings. I mean, the, the rhetoric of uh, the Animasons was really anti-elitist. The first really power to the people political movement. And so on September 11th, 1830, the fourth anniversary of William Morgan's disappearance, the Anti-Masons held the first national party convention in American history. It would be a clean break with the past, a chance for the common man to regain control of his government. But something strange happened. By the time the convention rolled around, party leaders had shifted their focus from Masons in general to Andrew Jackson specifically. And when the anti-Masons finally nominated their candidate, the guy they picked was a Mason. His name was William Wirt, and in his acceptance letter, he said that if elected, he would not ban Masons from public office. Party leaders then went on to make common cause with Henry Clay's national Republicans in many states. Purists felt that the party had been hijacked by the very insiders it was meant to challenge. And this whole idea of the convention, this radical anti-elitist way to choose a candidate, it became mainstream within a few years. The National Republicans had their first convention in 1831, the Democrats in 1832. By 1838 or so, the Anti-Masons had been folded into a new party, the Whigs, successor to the National Republicans. The radical activists who'd railed against the corrupt two-party system had been engulfed by it. That was one of our producers, Jessie Gabretson, telling the story with the help of the University of Virginia's Michael Holt. We're talking today about political conventions and whether they've really represented the people. And we're going to turn now to a political convention that was not a nominating convention. In fact, it was made up of people who were not in political parties. In July 1848, five women gathered for tea in Waterloo, New York. Four were radical Quaker reformers. The fifth was a non-Quaker, but also an activist, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. By the end of their afternoon tea, they'd decided to hold a convention on the status of women. Ten days later, the Seneca Falls Convention began at the local Methodist church. Some 300 women and men attended. The document they produced was called the Declaration of Sentiments. It was a strong assertion of women's rights, and it was modeled on the Declaration of Independence of 70 years earlier. The Declaration concludes with the hope that this convention will be followed by a series of conventions embracing every part of the country. Now, reading that last line, we couldn't help but wondering, why this emphasis on conventions? Why not just have a meeting? We put that question to Nancy Hewitt, an historian at Rutgers University. I think one of the reasons that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was so insistent on organizing a convention rather than some other kind of more informal meeting was that she wanted to set an agenda for the women's rights movement that would be taken as seriously as the agenda for the anti-slavery movement or the agenda for a political party. 
By the 1840s, conventions were well established as an appropriate way for American citizens to organize. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's focus was on political and legal change, like getting the right to vote. This emphasis on conventions was her way of saying, we want to be part of the system. But that wasn't the only vision of change at play in Seneca Falls. There was another group represented by Lucretia Maud and Frederick Douglass and other radical Quakers who had a much broader vision of social justice in which women's rights would merge with anti-slavery, peace movements, other kinds of movements for social change to create a new world order that would be more just and more egalitarian as well as more democratic. This group wasn't saying we want to be part of the system. It was more like we need a new system. And these radical Quakers often saw the more legalistic electoral vision of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her supporters as far too narrow to create the kind of changes that they believed needed to be made to make the United States a truly democratic nation. And to get a sense of what this more radical group wanted, it helps to take a look at what else was going on in 1848. Violent revolutions were shaking established regimes in present-day France, Germany, Italy, Poland, Belgium, Ireland, Switzerland, Denmark. The list just goes on. Women played a significant role in these revolutions. They published journals and petitions. They organized political clubs and lobbied government officials. In France, they built barricades and fought in the streets alongside their male comrades. And across the Atlantic, Americans were paying close attention. Mainstream newspapers and reform papers were absolutely magnetized by events in Europe. Uh, now, some of them were horrified by these uprisings. Others saw this as part of a new movement for freedom and democracy and therefore a kind of legacy of American ideals. But there was just massive coverage. Frederick Douglass, in his paper, The North Star, he claimed that reports of the French uprising hit the United States, quote, like a bolt of living thunder. Thanks to steam navigation and electric wires, a revolution now cannot be confined to the place or the people where it may commence, but flashes with lightning speed from land to land until it has traversed the globe. For Lucretia Mott and her fellow radicals, this sense of revolutionary possibility was exciting. But to other Americans, it was a chilling reminder of what had happened in the French Revolution a half century earlier. There, a convention that had begun with calls for political rights ended with the terror. In some ways, the anxiety over Seneca Falls was an anxiety over the very meaning of a political convention. Was this rational citizens organizing to solve a political problem, something like the American Constitutional Convention? Or was it a radical attempt to subvert the political order, one that might end in the chaos that followed the National Convention in the French Revolution? Now, women's rights organizers knew that to make progress, they had to convince mainstream America that they were the good kind of convention, not the scary kind. And in the end, they did. The more revolutionary side of Seneca Falls was edged out. Elizabeth Cady Stanton focused on political change within the system. And eventually, radical ideas such as women voting became, well, <laughs> conventional. Helping us tell that story was Nancy Hewitt, a professor of history and women's studies at Rutgers University. We've got to, as we approach these conventions and people get excited, 
it's easy to forget how forgettable they are. And when I say forgettable, I mean right afterwards. <laughs> this is a person who knows a thing or two about conventions. She's attended plenty of them. I'm Eleanor Holmes Norton. I represent the District of Columbia in the House of Representatives. So I had gone to conventions before, but there's never been a convention as memorable, certainly for me, and I think in many ways for our country, as the 64 convention. 1964. It was a big year, especially for the civil rights movement. Lyndon Johnson had signed the Civil Rights Act in July, but at the same time, voter registration efforts in Mississippi were being met with violent opposition. This was the summer that three civil rights workers there, two of them from out of state, had been murdered and their bodies weren't found for weeks afterwards. Leslie McLemore was a sharecropper's son in Mississippi who had just graduated from college and he was active with local voter registration efforts. The state of Mississippi had been saying to the world that our Negroes in Mississippi are happy. Uh, they do not wish to vote. They do not wish to participate. It is these outside agitators that are, are causing all of the problems. Civil rights workers hatched a plan to show that blacks in Mississippi did want to be part of the political process and could be effective. They were going to bring their struggle to the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City. All of Mississippi's delegates to the convention that year were white, which was to be expected because the state's Democratic Party was firmly controlled by segregationists and blacks were systematically prevented from voting. So civil rights workers created a new party within the old Democratic Party. They called it the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And with legal guidance from Eleanor Holmes Norton, who was fresh out of law school, they meticulously followed the official party rules to elect a separate slate of delegates to the convention. 64 of the delegates were black, four were white. Leslie McLemore was among them. Quite frankly, our expectations were at the end of this process that we would be the legitimate, bona fide, recognized uh, Democratic Party in Mississippi and recognized by the National Democratic Party. Uh, we had built, we thought, a very strong case. So the delegates traveled to Atlantic City and began making that case. They set up tables on the boardwalk and shared stories about disfranchisement back home. Inside, they lobbied other delegates. And the high point came in testimony before the Credentials Committee by the vice chair of the Freedom Democrats, a former sharecropper who had become one of the movement's most powerful speakers. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Ruseville, Mississippi. It was a packed room because the, all the networks, the three networks, you know, were there then uh, recording what was going on because this was really a big deal. And I was standing actually uh, in the, one of the corners of the meeting room with Congressman Adam Clayton Powell from New York. Fannie Lou Hamer told the story of being confronted by her plantation boss after she had tried to register to vote. He said, if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. That then if you go down and withdraw, that you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him that I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. 
I had to leave that same night. She also told of the story of her arrest for riding on a bus where some of the passengers attempted to use the white facilities in a bus station. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. And she describes that beating of how her skin turned black because the guys were beating her with the billy clubs. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. I was crying, and as I looked around the room, other people were crying. So I was thoroughly convinced that we would be seated. I mean, why wouldn't we be seated? The answer to that question had less to do with the Credentials Committee than it did with politics. Sitting on top of the party ticket was Lyndon Johnson, the incumbent president. Now, Johnson was pro-civil rights, but Johnson was also the quintessential politician. He worried that supporting the Freedom Democrats would alienate his Southern base. So Johnson told Senator Hubert Humphrey, one of the leading advocates for civil rights, that if Humphrey could prevent a white Southern walkout, it would secure him the number two slot on the party's ticket. Humphrey took the bait. He and Walter Mondale, the party leader, offered the Freedom Democrats a compromise. We got two delegates, which was considered by everybody except us, a breakthrough. And, and, and people were essentially saying to us that you people really don't understand what you've done, that you've upset uh, the national political apricot, that you've done things here that no other group uh, was able to do. And most of them, obviously were saying to us that you really should accept the compromise, that you've done something quite remarkable. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party rejected the compromise. In the words of Fannie Lou Hamer, we didn't come all this way for no two seats, because all of us is tired. Fifteen years later, Norton traveled to Mississippi on official business. She was greeted by Aaron Henry. He had been one of the founders of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Now, he was the chairman of the Democratic Party of Mississippi. That is a straight line from the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And I think in hindsight, if you had asked uh, Aaron Henry, he would say, oh, well, I, I, I think we did some good there in 1964. Guys, I just want to make one very quick point. What these folks were trying to do in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was follow the rules. In fact, dot every I, cross every T. Uh, there must be a longer history here of 
those who want to get in are playing by the rules. Uh, those who are already in look at these folks as troublemakers or worse. Yeah, Brian, it really goes back to the fundamental question of legitimacy. And I think we what we need to keep in mind is that the people are very conservative. We know the way things are supposed to happen. If we're going to have a revolution, for instance, in early America, it's because we know that our traditional rights are being violated. And they say the reason we're doing this, the people are meeting in this extraordinary convention, is because ordinary government has been shut down. We don't have any choice. And so, yeah, you got to dot those I's and cross those T's exactly because you have to appear to yourselves and to your fellow Americans in this case to be doing the right thing, to be legitimate. And that's what the people who wrote state constitutions did. They formed conventions. Peter, you know, you're describing exactly another moment in American history. And weirdly enough, it's secession you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> you know, the that's most right radical right. thing that's ever been done in this country the attempt exactly to dismember right. the United States, followed in a very punctilious sort of way all the forms of conventions and constitutions. And you think about sort of the, the best example of this is Virginia in 1860-61. They're looking at the beginnings of the Confederate States of America, which are a little bit ragtag down there in South Carolina and Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, folks. Let's take a deep breath. Let's pause. Let's, let's embody the traditions of our ancestors. Let's have a convention. Let's bring people from every county in Virginia. Let's come together in the Capitol. Let's let everybody have their say. Let's let this be publicly documented. Let's let delegates come from the Confederate states, and let's talk with our friends in the United States and decide what we're going to do. Yeah. But while they debate this week after week after week, there are people rioting in the streets of Richmond saying, come on, enough already. You know, right. This is a revolution. And all we're doing is recovering the traditions handed down to us by our forefathers. And that's why the symbol of the Confederacy is George Washington. Now, ironically, skip ahead a few years. The Confederacy has been defeated. The states of the former Confederacy are now trying to become part of the United States of America. And the Congress says, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to go through all the forms again. You're going to have to elect delegates to new conventions, and those delegates must include African-American men as well. And you're going to come together in conventions where everybody can see you, pass new constitutions that acknowledge the end of slavery and your acceptance of the 14th Amendment. And when you have done that, when you have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, then you may become Americans again. So as you can see, Brian, to answer your good question, it goes right back to the founding and it goes through the defining crisis at the middle of American history. Maybe you can help us figure out what happens after 1964. If I'm not mistaken, that would be 68. And if I'm not mistaken, some big stuff happened <laughs> That's in the right, 1968. What we're talking about is the 1968 National Convention of the Democratic Party held in Chicago. And a lot of Democrats have given up on the conventional process. In fact, they say very explicitly, look, African-Americans did everything by the book and they didn't get seated in 1964. Ironically, even though African-Americans were seated in the 1968 convention, Things had moved much more quickly in the streets. Demands were much higher. Demands now were for black power, not just for dotting the I's and crossing the T's. 
while the convention droned on inside ultimately nominating Hubert Humphrey, the real action was out in the streets of Chicago, where later a commission investigating what happened concluded that the Chicago police rioted. But Brian, it, it is, after all, uh, the question of uh, who are the people? And I think what protesters draw attention to when they believe that the political process is fundamentally failing is the unrepresentativeness of institutions, including nominating conventions. You want in and you push hard and you say, I've been playing according to the rules. But when you feel it's hopeless, when you feel the whole system is rigged against you, then in the name of the people you take to the streets. show, we're taking a closer look at political conventions in American history. We're asking when they have and when they've not lived up to their claim to represent the voice of the people. Of course, here on Backstory, we always represent the voice of the people. <laughs> Each week, we invite listeners to ask us their questions about the topic online via Facebook, Twitter, and our website. Today, we're calling up one of the folks who left us a note. Hey guys, we have a phone call from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and it's Chris. Hello. We're talking about conventions. Well, we've seen so many wild and crazy conventions in the past, and it just seems like the last several that we've had are just been long political infomercials. And I'm just yeah. wondering if we're ever going to see anything like we saw with the brokered political conventions of the past. Oh, so we're getting nostalgic about the past. Uh, the question is, will it ever get interesting again? And the futurologists at the Backstory will answer that question. We'll begin with somebody who can report authentically about the era when conventions were great fun. Ed? Well, you know, ironically, I'm going to talk about the era which was in the 20th century because Ooh. one reason that these conventions seem like such long infomercials is they are not actually choosing the vice presidential candidate. Right. And so there's no drama. They've already figured out through the primary system who the presidential nominees are going to be. And now you have the presidential candidate himself choosing who the vice president's going to be. And so what is there actually to do other than to try to drag out the person who might be the presidential candidate two or three presidential cycles from now? So, Brian, it just strikes me that that, that, that last happened in uh, the 1952 or something, I think, with Adlai Stevenson. And uh, as a result, uh, ever since then, it's basically just been a car double coronation. Yeah, I think Chris is yearning for the fun days like 1924 and the unair-conditioned Madison Square Garden, where the convention went on for 16 days. I can smell uh, it now. And <laughs> yeah, it, it could smell exactly. And is this what you're talking about, Chris? Is that what you're yearning for? Kind of a battle royale between the urban faction of the Democratic Party. They uh, united behind uh, Al Smith of New York. And uh, there were those from the rural sector, the solid south of the Democratic Party. And ultimately, 
they ended up choosing John W. Davis. But uh, it it was exciting, you know, and that's before they even got to the party platforms uh, where they fought about whether to sanction the Ku Klux Klan and they fought about whether to endorse the League of Nations. I guess one of the things that's kind of stimulated my thought here is I've been reading a book about the 1948 election uh, this summer, and they went into detail. Um, I kind of thought that it was a foregone conclusion that Tom Dewey and and Truman were both going to get the nominations that year, and turns out, you know, there's a pretty healthy fight at the convention and even goes back to 44 when, uh, you know, Wallace was uh, dumped in favor of Truman. And you don't see that kind of thing anymore. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I guess maybe that's in many ways that might be a good thing uh, if you're involved in this sort of thing and you're a supporter of that political party. You'd like to have things maybe worked out before you get there. But when I think about democracy and I think about people being involved, um, I guess you have to take the good, bad and the ugly to some extent. Well, it seems to me that democracy has a lot to do with participants believing their participation matters. Now, when you have this public spectacle in which nothing matters, I mean, that seems to me the death of democracy. I mean, I don't want to sound sentimental or nostalgic for the old period, but I want to know from you modern historians, you current event guys, whether the boringness of conventions is correlated with the death of the party as a a viable institution of electoral mobilization. Okay, here's the quick answer, Peter. Parties lost a lot of power over the course of the 20th century because of democracy. They ceded the selection process to the people in the primary process. These primaries were few and far between uh, even in the early 20th century. I'm willing to bet there were none of them in your century. Is that right, Ed? Well, actually, they, they... Begin in the 19th century, and I think if around the turn of the century. So, I, yes, I will give you partial credit, Brian, for that answer. <laughs> you know, they are that they, they go hand in hand with the progressive reforms, right, of the early 20th century. Exactly, they're, they're seen as a, a more democratic way of letting people have a a say before it's all brokered at these conventions that we're kind of nostalgic for. At least Peter is. <laughs> yeah, and Chris is absolutely right. Even as late as the 40s and the 1950s into the early 1960s, the majority of the delegates were not chosen by these primaries. It's really in the wake of that riotous convention in 1968 that the Democrats say, you know, we re- power to the people. All right, Peter's awake now. Yeah, power yeah, to yeah. the people. That that fist held high. Well, it, power to know, the people. It seems to me that uh, democracy, a la primary elections, uh, devaluing brokering and conventions, all that the end game drama. Actually, that's maybe good for democracy, but I think it's bad for parties because yeah. uh, parties. Uh, cease to engage the national imagination, and 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 who cares anymore? You know, people are already decided, right? Because imagine an electorate that's to some extent up for grabs, and there's drama, there's excitement. Okay, Mister Party Pooper, <laughs> put this in your party pipe and smoke it. The parties come back with a vengeance, Peter. Why is that? It's because campaigns by the end of the 20th century are beginning to cost more and more money, and that's because of TV, and that's because of media. And who becomes crucial 
for raising that money. That's the national parties. Now, these are not the kinds of parties that Ed would recognize from the 19th century, kind of bottom-up, locally-based yeah, exactly. Parties. No, no, no. These are national—you might call them national corporations. You it's might almost call money. them multinational corporations. It's money. But you know what? It's not just money, Peter. And here's the even more anti-democratic thing. All right. It's the ability to draw— the district lines. Those parties, they can exercise control every 10 years. Hey, this started back in your period, the national census. Well, when that census comes in, every 10 years, state legislatures redraw the precincts, the boundaries, how people actually determine who's going to represent them. And you know, the only entity that's organized to redraw those boundaries in a concerted way that favors them. It's your beloved political parties. And there couldn't be anything more anti-democratic than drawing precinct and congressional district lines so that the incumbent is ensured of a victory or so that the guy or the gal from the other party doesn't have a chance. Hey, Chris, uh, you, you've really incited a virtual riot here at Backstory. Uh, thanks for your call. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Bye. Pies in the USA. We need more pies in the USA. Oh, pies in the USA. We need more. We need more. Now, when you think of the modern convention... One of the first things that comes to mind is the speech. And even today, a great convention speech can launch the career of a political newcomer. Think Barack Obama at the 2004 Democratic Convention, for example. One of the greatest speeches in convention history is the Cross of Gold speech given by William Jennings Bryan at the 1896 Democratic National Convention. It's the speech that propelled Bryan to his first nomination for president, the first of three nominations in total. We'll ignore the fact that he lost all three of those elections and instead (laughs) focus on the convention, where he was a big hit. Now, in order to understand the weight of this speech by Bryan, you need to have a real sense of what was at stake for the Democratic Party. The United States in 1896 was on the gold standard, and this means that you could take your cash to a bank ask for gold, and be given the same amount of gold anywhere you went in the country. It was the same standard used in England, which made trade a lot easier. But the United States had just suffered a serious depression, a depression that left the country divided along regional lines. States in the East were financially stable. They were economic powerhouses. And states out West, well, they were in a lot of debt. So these Western states decided that the easiest way to get rid of their debt was simply to change the monetary standard, move from the gold standard to silver. So what would happen if you converted from the gold to the silver standard is the value of the American dollar would be cut in half. This is Richard Bensel, a professor of government at Cornell. Switching monetary standards was a radical idea. It would devalue the dollar overnight. It would help debtors, but be a disaster for anybody who had lent hard currency out to those debtors. It would be great for the states in debt out west because their debts would be cut in half overnight, 
but it would be horrible for the financial powers in the East, who would lose half of their wealth overnight. So when William Jennings Bryan decided to give the final pro-silver speech at the 1896 Democratic Convention, he knew that half the room was going to be against him. Richard Bensel tells that story. There were about a thousand delegates. They sat down on the bottom, and the, the, the seats for the spectators were all around them. Even if you knew nothing else about the convention, just by watching the demonstrations, you could tell who was gold and who was silver. When a silver speaker would speak, all the silver delegates would stand up, and you'd look down on the convention floor, and it was like a checkerboard. Big squares and small squares, depending on the size of the, the state delegations, but it was like a checkerboard. So all the silver states would stand up, and the gold people would sit down, and the silver people would, would cheer and stop and stand on their seats. And when they alternated, it was like watching the board invert. So New York would stand up, and, right. and, and Texas would sit down, and then it would be <laughs> the other way around. But there was very little contact between the gold and silver delegates. So there was a great deal of angst in the room. There were 20,000 people scattered over two or three acres of seating. The seating was all temporary, so made out of plywood and wood. That meant that when the delegates demonstrated, they learned very rapidly that if you stomped your feet up and down, you could make an incredible racket. <laughs> In fact, the seats were oak because only oak could be strong enough to hold some of the bigger <laughs> delegates when they stood up on and <laughs> jumped up and down in the seats. They actually rejected one shipment of chairs because they weren't stout enough for the, the, their delegates. <laughs> it was also true there was, no, there was no soundproofing. So everything is wood and hard surfaces, and that meant noise reverberated. One of the things to remember is there were no microphones. If you were not a speaker who from the very beginning could keep quiet in that room, fix the attention of all of those spectators and the delegates, you didn't have a chance to speak <laughs> because the noise would rapidly overwhelm whatever you could project. So what Brian wanted is he wanted to be the last speaker for the silver platform. And he wanted that because he knew the delegates were going to be quiet. He also knew he had a strong pair of lungs, and he had a very strong pair of lungs. This is two or three acres, 20,000 people. Even if it's really quiet, you have to be really loud. Yes. So when he did this, they all had little tables um, when they spoke. And he brought up his papers, and he put them on the table. And uh, he never looked at them again. He had, he had his speech, but he never, he never looked at it. They were a prop. He would stand in the middle of the platform... And he began to speak. Mr. Chairman and gentlemen of the convention. Some 25 years after the Cross the Gold speech, Brian made a recording of the text. I come to speak to you in the defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, the cause of humanity. He would come to an applause line, a line that he, he knew the Silverites would applaud. And... When he reached that point, he would step back, just almost imperceptibly. And the delegates knew that that was a pause. And because it was a pause, they could erupt in their demonstrations. 
And it, they would pound the floors, they'd jump up on their seats, they threw paper in the air and so forth. They went wild. And this is, the reporter just said this over and over again. And the crowd goes wild. Afterward, Brian described these motions and these ways of, of, uh, of, of coordinating the crowd. He called it like playing an organ. He arranged it so they could be noisy, demonstrate their passion, and then be quiet so they could listen to him again. We were restored by metalism, and then let England have by metalism because the United States has. He went on with this speech, and there were several more of these lights, and then he reached the end. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor. Saying, thou shalt not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And that's where he, he stepped back. And he spreads out his arms as if he's the one being crucified for mankind. And then there was a space of oh, three or four seconds or so in which he thought, well, maybe this is just too kitschy and nobody's going to get it. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've really bombed. But then it erupted, and it went on for 20 minutes or so, and it started in the back, rolled forward, and the reporters described it that way, that the sound would roll through the convention. That what was, it was so neat about the, the, the newspaper reports, the vignettes they would get, and they'd say that, you know, so-and-so was dancing a jig in the, the aisle at, in, Mon- in the Montana delegation or something of, the, of that sort. But for Brian, it was just, it was incredibly exhausting. He was a big man, and they wanted to carry him around on the convention floor. <laughs> Even though his, the people who were trying to carry him loved him, they, they wanted to demonstrate. It was still hard to carry him. <laughs> so the, it was hard to know what to do with this demonstration. Once it got going, I mean, it was... You could not manipulate it. You couldn't do anything with it. You couldn't guide it. You couldn't lead it. Richard, I think you've made some of today's listeners uh, very hungry for anything spontaneous in either of the two current conventions. It's risky. It's Spontaneity is risky. But it is democracy in a way that, boy, we don't got it anymore. Richard Bensel is a professor at Cornell and author of Passion and Preferences, William Jennings Bryan and the 1896 Democratic National Convention. Well, that's all the time we've got for today. But remember, you can continue the conversation at BackstoryRadio.org. You'll also find us on Facebook and Tumblr. We tweet as at BackstoryRadio. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening, and don't be a stranger. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Neil Bessenstein, Jess Ingebretson, Eric Mennel, and Allison Quantz. Special thanks today to Barbara Carpenter. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day.
Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.